Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS. And with Lucy Dallas away, I am pleased to say Michael Keynes, editor of many things and author of Shakespeare and the 18th century, this will become relevant in a minute, is here in her stead. Hello, Michael. Hello, Thea. How are you? I am fine. I am working as your agent this week. Um, <laughs> this is great. I might sell one more copy of Shakespeare in the 18th century. I'll Here's take hoping. It. Thank <laughs> <Here's> you. Hoping. <laughs> There'll be a deal in the in the description bar. Um, you will be showing me up this week because you've put in plenty of legwork for the show, haven't you? I suppose I've done some actual legwork. It wasn't too far to go. It was really a couple of stops on the train and then a delightful walk through uh, leafy Dulwich. And this too will become relevant, I suppose, later on in the episode. Indeed, intriguing. Right, well, on which note? Coming up on this week's show, a new biography of the American artist Helen Frankenthaler gives us only a small part of a colourful and ceaselessly experimental picture. The critic Jenny Quilter will join us to explore that and to look beyond the artist's early years. But first, over to you, Michael. One way of thinking about Macbeth, and I'm adapting here the words of Emma Smith in her book, This is Shakespeare, is that it asks certain organisational and causational questions. Is this a story, for example, in which Macbeth willingly or unwillingly directs the action of his own play? Or is it better understood as a story in which he is acted upon by other people? Might we see him puppeted by supernatural forces beyond his control? And on a related note, when we consider the witches hailing him as a king in waiting and his wife nudging him towards seizing his chance to murder Duncan, ought we not to find this, I quote Emma again, a misogynist play, deeply distrustful of powerful women? The new production of Macbeth at the Almeida Theatre in London raises these questions afresh and gives us a chance to discuss them with Emma Smith herself as she's reviewed the production in this week's TLS and joins us now to talk about it. Emma, hello. Hello, Michael. First off, it sounds like this is a terrific production of Macbeth at the Almeida. Um, What's so special about it? It is absolutely terrific. And before we start, it's it's really annoying, isn't it, to hear how wonderful a a production is when it's completely sold out but it is going to be streamed (laughs) isn't it so there is a possibility for for some uh, streaming tickets Uh, so we're not not doing we're not having this wonderful conversation about it in a sort of haha you won't see this um, (laughs) mode Uh, it's it's a really excellent production I think in two ways one is it is uh, visually incredibly evocative and beautiful in a stark way. It's beautifully lit, it's beautifully designed, it's beautifully choreographed in that rather cramped, uh, claustrophobic stage. I think Macbeth is actually always better as a play in in a small space. It brings out the kind of entrapment 
uh, of of the the sort of psychological and physical entrapment of the characters. So that's one one mm. part of it. And the other part, I think, is the way it reimagines those elements that you you mentioned in your introduction that have become cliches. The witches. I mean, what on earth do you do with the witches after four centuries of, you know, jokes and and um, reproductions of those warty women with pointy hats and the cauldron and the, you know, when shall we three meet again? The whole thing feels creaky and potentially um, sort of risible. It's completely freshly done here. The witches are called the weird sisters. They've got much more of their a possibly original connection with with fate uh, and with the the fates uh, they watch and um oversee it's really hard to judge how much they affect things but they're wonderful and so too is lady macbeth who is not here the kind of um pushy uh violent ruthless wife of uh the the myth of the play but is someone much more charismatic, more brittle, uh, and uh, differently affected, affected by different aspects of the uh, the terrible things that the couple do than is usual. It sounds as well, I mean, if we jump to that, I mean, Chersha Ronan, this is her stage debut, and it sounds like she's picked her role very well, and she plays it very well. Is that is that right? <laughs> She does play it brilliantly. She's in. She's she's absolutely, uh, literally brilliant, incandescent. You know, sort of radiant with light. This is a very foggy, murky, uh, dark production. Literally dark production. And she is the only character who is insistently in light clothing, lit like a kind of Rita Hayworth sort of movie star. Uh, she's in a different frame of of this world uh, than the other characters and she does uh she, she does really carry the role i think some of the big speeches at the beginning are the the, the sort of i mean unsex me here is a it's very difficult to deliver that without being sort of cheaply pornographic or uh sort of seeming like you're play acting and there's a little bit of a sense of play acting in that but she mm-hmm. really uh, settles into into the role and particularly as Lady Macbeth's uh, speeches um, decrease in the second half of the play her presence in this production is still very prominent and very very moving. I mean that sounds extraordinary and I bet you've seen Lady Macbeth done not half as well of that and that kind of yeah pornographic or you know uncomfortable kind of quality being put on stage instead but it makes me think yeah. as well that this production you know you, you the word I think you use in your in the first paragraph of your review is, is cinematic you know that it's got a film star at its heart but also it sounds like the production values in every sense reflect that kind of quality and, and get, making it so murky but making her stand out and also giving her this presence that goes beyond the words themselves just to to be this figure kind of haunting the scenes in the second half. That's that's cinematic too. Is that, is that my getting about the right idea? Yeah, completely. I mean, it's a sort of cinema painted by Caravaggio or something. It's very high contrast, dark, and, and then these this, this light, lighting the particles in the air. It's very, very compelling. There is a use of perspex screens sometimes to divide out parts of the stage and they reflect back in some weird and unpredictable ways. Um, but the the great highlight, the, the the interpretive highlight and the heartbreaking moment of this production is really when Lady Macbeth uh, goes to Macduff's castle to warn Lady Macduff that the that that the, her husband's murderers, um, her husband's assassins are are, are, are going to come and take take her and her family. And in the play itself, there is an unnamed messenger who comes and says, you know, it it, it were best you were not found here. And it's it's already too late, but it's an absolute genius idea to have Lady Macbeth be that be that messenger and come and try to avert um, the, the moment where what the couple have done, what Macbeth has done, becomes um, absolutely beyond any possible justification. I love the fact. I mean, it's a bit hard on William Gaunt, who plays a very 
um, sort of likable old bufferish kind of Duncan uh, in a wheelchair grasping a sort of arthritic hand out to, to people around like a sort of, you know, grandpa at, at Christmas. Um, it Nobody really cares that he's murdered, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, I don't mean that about a failure of the production. Oh, no. I just mean in the world of this play, um, that, that is not the moment that sets everything uh, uh, sets everything at odds. And I think it's a sort of, you know, it's a manageable uh, collateral damage in the, the the kind of political world that the production paints. But the murder of Lady Macduff and her children is just the, the most terrible breach in, you know, hospitality, in com- comradeship, you know, in, in the world that's presented. And that's what mm-hmm. that's what this play sort of saves its horror for. It saves the horror until until Act Four. And it's absolutely wonderfully delivered. This being the 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 moment, the, the kind of the zenith of, of what you describe as the adaptation's radical spin on things, because we're moving from um, the misogyny that that Michael alluded to in the in the introduction, there and the way it has uh, traditionally been played, I suppose, to this this kind of this story of female solidarity. Yeah, quite, and and you know, Lady Macbeth and Lady Macduff have tended to be seen as sort of polar opposites of woman womankind. Uh, the one sort of uh, frigid, ambitious, no children, although the question about that, um, pushing her husband to uh, these terrible deeds. The other, you know, at home with her, with her family, um, uh, protecting them, you know, nurturing them. And But here, by having Lady Macbeth go uh, to Lady Macduff as, as, a, as a woman in this still very male-dominated world, uh, it's an incredibly moving moment. It gives Lady Macbeth a lot more agency, I think, in the second half of the play. And it also delivers the sleepwalking scene out damned spot, you know, f- famously. It, it really refreshes that and gives it a reason, prompts it. You know, in that scene in the play, L- Lady Macbeth says, the, the Thane of Fife had a wife, where is she now? And that's often seemed to critics to, to be a very... Uh, odd remark because how did she actually even really know that this had happened why does she start with that rather than with the murder of Duncan that we assume must be what has made her sort of mad with guilt Uh, and in this production it's 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 very different Uh, and that for me was absolutely revelatory about the possibilities uh, of both these characters. It's interesting isn't it how how those words can sort of find a logic uh, a narrative logic so long after they were written just by this 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 clever um rejigging of 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 the lines of things yeah and i think i think sort of as directors theater makers who have been uncomfortable with the easy misogyny about lady macbeth's um characterization have really tried to push at what give what makes her break down and tried to amplify that and understand it in some different ways. One recent Royal Shakespeare Company production suggested that it's not the murder of Duncan that breaks her, it's the separation from her husband. It's the fact that she is no longer there with him. She's no longer part of his plans. So I think there is a movement to fact to sort of try and find that, find some different kind of sense in that, rather than this rather moral narrative that however hard she seems uh, in planning the murder and framing the grooms and all of that this is going to catch up with her in the end um i I feel this production does something quite different with that and it does it for the audience too um one of the things i've often thought about the lady macduff scene is that it, it seems almost by shakespeare to be introduced to so late in the play to ginger up our sort of over slated kind of appetites for or violence and brutality. You know, we've had a lot of it right from the start, and it's as if, you know, the the play is trying to crank up worse and worse things to to to, to shock us, um, and that we still get that element here. But we have been introduced to the Macduffs much more consistently throughout. There's a lovely scene uh, in Act One which has the 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 table at which Duncan and all the uh, soldiers have come. Uh, to be entertained and to have the hospitality of the of the Macbeths, and 
Macduff, Lady Macduff and their children are very visibly there. So too is Fleance with uh, with Banquo. There is a sense of a sort of camaraderie and a wider uh, a, a, a sort of wider set of, of associations and and uh, emotional friendships. And by planting that early on, I think we really ratchet up the the emotional effect of of that scene. It does seem, Emily, I must say, I know we talked about being able to see this, you know, in some kind of online way, but I'm feeling envious because I've I've just been to see a fairly um, lacklustre, I I thought lacklustre Hamlet um, at the Young Vic. And I felt that what it lacked was precisely these qualities of a kind of um, directorial thoughtfulness about how every element of the play might be used and reinterpreted. And so this Macbeth sounds like it's quite a radical um, turn away, as it were, from the the Macbeth tradition, if if you could call it that, not necessarily of of playing it exactly the same way every time the play produced. Obviously, there's been hundreds of variations on the theme. But, uh, you know, of course, there was a TV one where it was all set in a sort of chef's kitchen, wasn't there, with James McAvoy and Mm. Neely Hawes. But um, it seems to me that there's a turn away, that moral turn away from punishing Lady Macbeth, that she's the real bad in here. She's manipulating her husband. She's kind of fiend-like in the eyes of her enemies. That's really a, a significant move. And it stems from maybe looking at it fresh. And that's a general lesson for restaging Shakespeare now, isn't it? That you have to look at them and sort of think, uh, you know, more carefully scrutinise them really for how they can be redone now. I completely agree and think what, what yeah why why would we do this why why now uh what what can this play say now that it couldn't say it at a, at a different time and i think the the kind of vindication of lady macbeth in a way here um plays really interestingly into how the the, the weird sisters are, are presented and their uh, presence throughout um there are kind of chorus they bring things on and off stage. They're very conspicuously calm and sort of all knowing, but not in any sense sort of cackly or uh, invasive. When, when Macbeth, um, in the second half of the play, when Macbeth vows that he's going to go to the witches and find out uh, by the worst means the worst, this production uh, has them sit on his bed. He's, he's asleep or he's in that sort of half sleep. Um, and they show him this uh, the I- image of his own nightmares and his own um, sort of nightmarish future. So they they operate in a quite different way from the sort of socio historical kind of witches that we that we sometimes see. They are not children, although there's been a lot of uh, recent productions which have made quite spooky omeny kind of capital out of these um, eldritch children. But they're not children. These are these are mature uh, women whose role seems to be to understand and to observe, not to effect. And there is a question, I think, about the play. I think the play is a true tragedy in, in one sense, in that its machinations seem beyond human. That's not mm. to say they're with the witches. I don't think they are. Mm-hmm. There's something about this world that the world of of uh, of Scotland, the the political world, uh, even the kind of ecological world um, that is at a tipping point here, and it's something has knocked it over, and there's nothing can be done about it. It's not completely clear, as I say, where to locate that agency, but there is a sense this is a world. Uh, in a kind of free fall. I mean, that's interesting. You you mentioned an ecological point um, because you described the plays, the waterworks, um, and it, it, that would seem to sort of tie in with an ecological concern. Yeah. So there's a standpipe uh, on on the stage, and uh, Macbeth turn the tap on, and they you know they use it to to rinse their hands, literally their bloody hands, uh, and it's used at other other points. Uh, in the production, but then in the the sort of last third, uh, it's not literally that someone leaves the tap on, but water starts to come up slowly but inexorably from the the drain of that of that tap, and it begins to flood the stage. And it's it, I've, I've been thinking about this, you know, ever since I saw it. It's uh, it is completely um, beautiful in a, in a in a stark way. There's a moment where Lady Macbeth is very gently beckoned by the weird sisters and by 
the ghost, presumably the, the return of Lady Macduff from this bed of torment that, that, that's just sort of killing her into out into the light and they just lay her down very, very gently. But in this water, and I was thinking, surely Sir Sharona must, what must the insurance be like for having this? <laughs> great, uh, can she really lie in water for, you know, 10 minutes or something uh, every, every night? Uh, quite an appreciable, you know, a uh, couple of inches of water on the stage with a, a sort of rim all around it. So there's a lot of splashing around when the uh, forces of Malcolm come to, to attack the castle. But and a sense of this, it, for me, as I was in the theatre, I, I felt this, this symbolises the sort of inexorable progress of, of the play. And since then, I've thought more about, you know, the r- rising water levels, which is such a kind of ecological concern that maybe that too nods to a larger cosmos and a larger frame to consider uh, what's happening uh, in in the play, it's very very it's very striking. Mm. It has just the very slight, um, very very slight sense that it makes people giggle because they're getting a bit wet at the front, um, <laughs> in the front rows. And there is, if I had one criticism of the play, I don't think it is a criticism really, but it's an observation about this production. It's very serious. Uh-huh. There's not. Yes. There's, Did you say no, no porter? porter no porter scene. Um, wow. No attempt to use the play's own leavening mechanism, which you know oft, often is quite a difficult thing to put in the modern theatre. But nothing mm-hmm. really instead of that, you know that that this is beautiful. Every every shot, as it were, going back to the cinematic, every shot, every tableau is beautifully, beautifully framed. Mm-hmm. There is not much sense of the of, of the improv or the off the cuff or something which is paced differently. The pace is pretty steady. Uh, pretty steady throughout and and as lots of critics have noticed it's a long Macbeth just mm-hmm. over three hours uh, and that's because it is uh, deliberative really distinctly deliberative and sometimes that um, feels a bit portentous but other the, the the majority of it feels just freshly thought through seriously intelligent uh, and and something quite quite distinctive uh, and memorable. I don't mean to sound completely obsessed with the water on stage, but um, presumably, presumably that I mean really adds something to the to the sound of the play as well. You know, you mentioned that this, this kind of sploshing and um, at one point the you know multiple people wading through this water at the same time. I mentioned this because you you also describe a cellist and the role that that kind of comes to play uh, in 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 this adaptation. I wonder if you could tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, there's some beautiful, um, I wouldn't call it incidental music, it's much more important than that. There's a beautiful cello soundtrack, um, which is, it isn't bark, but it's sort of barky. Um, It adds to that sense of seriousness. I mean, nothing fun ever happened to a cello accompaniment, did it really like, like that? It is an instrument which suggests something sort of aching and sort of poignant and uh and that's really really exploited here um the person who plays the cello is also an interesting interlocutor in the play sometimes uh, she it's as if she is invisible to everybody else but sometimes she uh, does participate she takes the role of the waiting uh, gentlewoman for instance uh, that soundtrack is very again very cinematic i think there's almost no moment of silence uh, on this stage, um, it, it does have uh, a soundtrack it, it, in addition to the language, uh, the language of the play. And the splashing, you're absolutely right, that does give a, a really different quality. That and the light gives a very different quality to the end of the play. I don't think Faber's production feels that Malcolm's accession to the throne of Scotland at the end is is the end of the problems and in fact the, the production ends with its own beginning so it, it very strongly suggests that there's something cyclical about it but nevertheless as the troops of Malcolm approach Macbeth's castle the water on the stage just makes the the scene much lighter uh, than it than it has been um, and brings out that sense of of the reflections quite differently.
I don't know if I need to apologise for my dog barking in the background. <laughs> are there any dogs in Macbeth? Can we can we explain it that way? <laughs> there, there, there is, is a now. whole long catalogue about dogs, <laughs> so we could go through. He is a bit of a water in, dog, yes. In the catalogue, you go for dogs, yes, go for men. I had one more question, but actually it's for you, Michael, if I may. Um, <laughs> no, sorry, I should have warned you about this. Um, we've talked a lot about tradition and 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 deviation from it. And I wondered, I mean, in terms of these traditions, how how might, you know, an 18th century production, because I know that's, you know, your your sort of specialism uh, in this, Michael. So how, how might an 18th century production of Macbeth vary from, say, a 17th or a 19th century one? You know, what would you expect to see there? That's a good question, because I think, um, you know, Emma, your review made me think about this and how... Um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's Davenant who transforms the play after the restoration with a lot more witchy action, probably a lot more uh, spectacular action. Um, but then Garrick, I guess, is kind of a key figure in in supposedly restoring the play. I mean, he does give Macbeth a dying speech and there are various other ways in which we probably find the Garrick Macbeth ridiculous. But at the same time, one reason, you know, this Almeida production reminds me of of this 18th century production is that it was the moment when I think Lady Macbeth emerges as a starring role, you know, in, in herself. And I think it's Hannah Pritchard who makes such an impact as, as Lady Macbeth that Garrett retires the role from his repertoire when Hannah Pritchard retires. So it's so strongly associated with her and it's clearly, you know, has such a sort of force on its own. So although I'm sure, like I say, we'd find a production ridiculous if we could time travel back and see it, um, and we'd also find it to be much more about uh, probably, you know, just heroic masculinity in ways that we probably find objectionable right now. Um, there is also this renewed or who knows, new interest in, in Lady Macbeth and her role in the sort of psychodrama. And maybe that's to do with the changing times and, you know, how people conceive of, of human nature in the 18th century. I don't know. That's my immediate thought about it. I don't know if there's another way of putting it, Emma better way or more accurate way no that that's really really fascinating I hadn't thought of that being the moment that Lady Macbeth you know emerges as a character that's that's completely that's completely brilliant and I suppose that's in the company of some um of of a way that the witches are becoming codified in the 18th century and that that's something that we have inherited in the certainly the popular view the popular vision of Macbeth yeah, I think I think it sort of points to an idea that it does need renewal all the time. But you know, uh, you know, I think in that period, the idea is a production is a production, and if you can, you continue it in every way. You know, crit- you know, interpretively, it doesn't. It's not meant to change until novelty becomes a kind of commercial property in itself. That this is this is an innovative way of staging Shakespeare. On the one hand, they're saying this is the real Shakespeare. Ignore that traditional inherited version from from you know sort of. 50 years ago or whatever you know I think it's even more but you need to and you also need to start thinking about it afresh so you can say it's it's both restored and it's made fresh I don't know it sounds like you know there is maybe a touching point in, in common with the Almeida uh, staging that you've, you've just seen. I think there certainly is I think this is a really worthy successor to what's been a, an amazing play in the in the theatre over centuries uh, I feel really privileged uh, to have seen it, and I really urge people to to have a look at the streaming if it's possible. You know, be, being there w- was wonderful, but there are things about that cinematic framing which will which will make it a really good screen version. And although I know many people are sort of fed up with doing that now, um, maybe make, maybe make an exception here. That's a, a good note on which to urge listeners to check out that on the Almeida. Emma, thank you so much for joining us and talking about this production. I think it will stay with me, even if I don't see it. It sounds remarkable. It will certainly stay with me. Thanks so much for sending me. I really appreciated that opportunity. Still to come on the show, the fierce young years of the artist Helen Frankenthaler and what she did next. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode.
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Now, the artist Helen Frankenthaler was born in 1928 and died in 2011 at the age of 83. She worked right up until the end so that her career spanned six decades. And she was, until the last, experimental. That's really the cornerstone of her art. Here, washing turpentine-thinned oil paint in bright colours this way and that across a canvas just to see what happened there, Buffing, or guzzying to use her word, painted surfaces with sandpaper and dentist drills. A recent biography of Frankenthaler shed some light on the first few years of this brave and inquisitive artist's career, which leaves rather a lot in the dark. Here to tell us about the book Fierce Poise, Helen Frankenthaler, a 1950s New York by Alexander Nemirov, and a little bit about what Frankenthaler did in her later years, is Jenny Quilter, the author of New York School Painters and Poets, Neon in Daylight. Hello, Jenny. Hi, Thea. Thanks for joining us. You start your review, as the book does, with an anecdote, which seems relevant for the light it might shed on Frankenthaler's character. Can you tell us the story? Sure. So Alexander Nemirov's biography of Helen Frankenthaler um, begins with an event that Helen went to with her roommate, Gabby Rogers. Um, There was a uh, sort of costume party the Artists' Equity Association um, had held at the Astor Hotel in Times Square, New York. And um, Helen decided to attend the event with Gabby. Um, She had just moved from Bennington College in Vermont to the city. Um, She'd grown up in New York City, but she'd been away. And now this was kind of her re-entry into the city and also her entry into the art world. And so um, they went to the ball dressed in costume and Helen was dressed as Picasso's girl before a mirror. And uh, Time magazine was taking photographs of the event and so the um, Alexander um, points out that the one color photograph that they included in the magazine's coverage of the event was of Helen and Gabby. Um, and Helen is wearing um, uh, balloons blown up 
to represent breasts and she has a mop um, for hair and she looks very, you know, every inch a Picasso girl. And Gabby Rogers is dressed as the cover of Flair magazine. Um, and they both look like they're having the time of their lives. And I think for Alexander, it's a sort of a wonderfully vivid image of a young woman um, coming into her own and sort of entering this new art world for herself as a painter. It's true that it does, I mean, it does seem to capture the title of the book is Fierce Poise, but that that fierceness or bravery and apparent lack of embarrassment. Um, these things do <laughs> seem to, to run through her life, or certainly her early years, which are uh, Nemirov's focus. We'll, we'll come back to that. But it's it's not your average 22-year-old who thinks a cold call uh, Clement Greenberg, as she does, you know, probably the most important art critic of the day. Yeah, she had a lot of moxie. Uh, But also, you know, she grew up um, in Upper Manhattan. Um, Her father was a judge. She was growing up with a lot of privilege and support. Um, uh, Her parents, um, her father in particular, was very proud of her abilities as an artist and would um, tell his friends, right, at dinner parties, stories about Helen. For example, when she was a child, I think she was about five years old, she decided one day to draw an unbroken chalk line on the sidewalk from the Guggenheim Museum to her apartment, which was five blocks away. And she did it very determinedly. She drew this single unbroken line. And it was an anecdote that was told by her parents, which I think indicates a kind of level of support and validation for her. I think it also reveals the fact that, you know, she lived five blocks away from the Guggenheim Museum. And so she grew up in a world of economic privilege as well. And Bennington College is a, you know, exclusive liberal arts college. It's a, it's a great college to go to. Um, so I think there was a sense she had a kind of confidence to com- uh, contact Greenberg because um, she, she'd grown up in worlds where it would be perfectly normal to ring up someone, Right who had authority mm. and, to, and to ask for their, their take on something. And when she rang Clement Greenberg to invite him to the, to the show that she'd curated, um, and it was of Bennington graduates' work, he, you know, by, by Alexander Nimirov's recounting of the event, he didn't sound surprised to be invited. I mean, his, his response was something to the effect of, oh, Bennington girls, I love Bennington girls, you know. So, <laughs> so he, you know, he, he also took up the invitation um, uh, swiftly. The two of them, uh, she met him at the exhibition, they toured it. Um, he criticised a painting um, which he thought was a bit derivative, which happened to be hers. Uh, he didn't know that at the time. But they sort of swiftly began a relationship that continued on and off for the next five years. And I think a lot of people commented on it, partly because of the age difference. He was about 20 years her senior. And in that world, you know, the downtown art world, there had been many painters who'd been toiling in obscurity for decades and were just starting to sort of become appreciated in terms of the museums, the galleries, there was a growing appetite for their work. And so Helen, who was a lot younger than those artists, but was painting in that tradition or in that kind of form, all of a sudden is given entrance into this world, partly because of her associations with Greenberg. Into this world, you, you get mountains and seas. Is that right, Jenny? Is that that's the kind of turning point or the first breakthrough for her? Yes. So she painted that um, a little bit after meeting Greenberg. So they went away on holiday to Provincetown. And at the end of the summer, she came back um, and painted that that, uh, painting. But that was, I think, maybe a year after first meeting Greenberg. So she was almost immediately having these experiences and holidaying with painters and having discussions with them and going to see their artwork. And so she had this incredibly swift introduction and immersion into a scene that had been also slowly developing in more isolation for 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 a decade or two before that and so I mean I suppose to 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 light on that work for a second mountains and sea specifically it seems as though it, it being a turning point she almost entered that world and then immediately started to to change things from the inside, didn't she? Because this is the this is the work that kind of signals a, a shift from abstract and uh, expressionism to colour field painting. Sure. So she came back from holiday 
she had been looking at landscape for a few months. Um, she put some unprimed canvas down on the floor. She'd seen Pollock's work, but Pollock was dripping with enamel paint. And what she was doing instead was using color almost as watercolor on the, on the canvas. And she started pushing the paint around on the canvas. And she, if you've seen videos of her, it's like she's pushing pools of liquid this way and that. And she experimented for about three hours seeing what that looked like on the canvas. And she knew immediately that she had something that interested her a great deal. I, I think at the time there were some critics who saw it and weren't, um, I don't know, they didn't see the potential. Um, uh, Harold Rosenberg, the critic, he complained that the paint was active rather than her application of it. Well, and that in so, itself is very interesting, isn't it? Because what, what colour field painting sort of does, and specifically this one, is it almost hides the role of the painter or, or, or puts it second to the role of, of the colour itself. Yeah, and that she was willing to do that shows a real confidence, right? Absolutely. She's not relying on, the, on this idea that she's heroically applying marks and then scraping them away and applying marks again. The force of her hand isn't as apparent on these, in, in these artworks as, as much as it is in others. It's interesting on that point, I mean, that the question of male authority, this is a quote from you, you say, the question of male authority bothers fierce poise in ways that Nemirov cannot escape. Could you tell us what you mean by that? Sure. So on the one hand, there are these patterns of male authority in her life that I think if you're a historian or an art critic looking at her work, it's just very hard to know exactly what to do with. So she had a relationship with Greenberg that ended. Um, she married Robert Motherwell who was also significantly older than her and part of the first generation New York school. Um, there are these, these moments in her life where who she chooses to, to, to have as a sort of central figure in her life are much older male figures. So he has that that he has to kind of deal with because he's chosen to focus on the 50s, which is her in her 20s, and it's Clement Greenberg and Robert Motherwell, who are the two male, significant male figures in her life, who provide access points for her career as well. And so how do you talk about a young woman developing her painting career without talking about this male authority? Uh, but then there's the second, the second issue, I think, in the book is that Nemirov very interestingly begins the book by describing his own reaction and his history with her work. And he makes himself very visible in the introduction. And he talks about how he taught Western art to students at Yale. He's now at Stanford. And he, he talks about how in the 90s, he wouldn't have been so into Frankenthaler. But now as an older man, he feels moved by her work. And he wants to speak to his students as someone who feels moved. Um, so it's a, it's a humbling gesture, right? He's trying to to show how this work makes him feel more human. But what it also does is it sets up Nemirov as an educator and we can hear his voice as an educator throughout the book. And because he's also chosen to call Frankenthaler Helen rather than Frankenthaler throughout the book, he's taking this very sort of close, the, the book sounds like he's speaking almost directly to her at times and it's this sort of uneasy blend of a male teacherly authority and a biography of Helen rather than Frankenthaler that starts to make it feel like it's very difficult to disentangle questions of male authority in the book um, because he's taken this sort of stance at the very beginning that then hangs over the rest of the book. And that's compounded by the fact that this book only focuses on her in her 20s when she was gaining authority and not so much on the other decades when she had authority and was doing something interesting with it. And of course, I mean, you, this is part of or perhaps a continuation, I suppose, of, of this broader problem um, with the way that we do tend to write about female artists um, of, of that period, isn't it? Because in, in, because in part, of course, the men were as you said they were the gatekeepers and the tastemakers but it's almost like a hangover from that continues to to kind of roll around roll around our heads yeah I mean I I am you know I have the same problem in writing about this period so I'm I'm sympathetic to Alexander with this um 
you know, I focused on this period. I focused on these women in their twenties because I was focusing on the fifties. There's a whole group of them. And a lot of the recent um, interest in painters like Helen Frankenthaler, Joan Mitchell, um, Grace Hardigan, it's, it's hard. It seems to, to, um, resist the drag of attention on them in the 50s when they were all part of a social scene um, that was quite coherent and tight-knit in New York and, um, and harder to focus on their careers when they moved out of that orbit. So Grace Hardigan moves to Baltimore, Joan Mitchell moves to France, um, Helen Frankenthaler moves eventually to Connecticut. And it, it seems to be a sort of a problem um, with documenting the scene, what happens when it's not a physical scene and these careers move beyond the limits of that scene? How do we then account for the years afterwards? You've got that great line in your piece, Jenny, which I thoroughly enjoyed about how we are in some way more interested in how these women gain this kind of autistic authority rather than what they, they do with it afterwards. So what, what are we missing out on by, by focusing too much on those? Can you tell us a bit about what happens after her 20s? Where does the work go after those beginnings? So she doesn't, it's not like her work takes a hard left turn. I, I mean, she's, mm-hmm, it's yeah. not, she doesn't do a Philip Guston. Uh, she's continuing to elaborate and expand and deepen the, the questions that are preoccupying her from the very beginning. Um, uh, it's not that her work is static, but that she, she knew from the very beginning what the things were that interested her and she kept on exploring them. I think her medium change shifts, right? So um, through the decades, she's doing painting. Then she moves on paper. Then she comes back to canvas a little bit in the early 2000s. So she's experimenting with um, different media. Um, she became very interested, as I think I briefly mentioned in the review, in printmaking um, and did some amazing, amazing prints, which I think the Tate has quite a few of them. Um, and maybe some of them are um, displayed right now uh, in conjunction with printmaking studios where basically she redefined um, uh, woodblock prints um, uh, in ways that just, you know, you look at these prints and you just can't work out how they were made. And she's using the same sort of that recklessness of a stain that she had in her canvas earlier on in a completely different sort of very line Um, dominated medium and so if you only focus on the 20s you miss her determination to kind of revolutionize different forms later on and I think also if you're only looking at her in the social climate of the 50s you're also it's, it's harder to see some of the more interesting relationships that there are with her and people in color field painting who she didn't know directly I mean she wasn't even in the studio when Noland and Morris visited um, mm-hmm. But when you put her work side by side with people like that or with Frank Stella, there are these different relationships that form that don't necessarily have to do with personal acquaintance, but have um, very interesting things to say about how we think about painting in the late 20th century. But also, I mean, you say, um, you know, we've talked a bit about how the men were at the time were the teachers. Um, you have this wonderful uh, anecdote, I think, from from the book of uh, one of Frankenthaler's teachers at Bennington, Paul Freely, who had this habit of standing behind his students as they worked, telling them who their daddy was, as in, uh, you say, Matisse is your daddy or Picasso is your daddy. Um, but the thing about Frankenthaler is that she went on to become a teacher as well. So the kind of the the influence that she would have exerted, the impressions that she would have made on people in, in that particular arena as well isn't isn't documented here. But presumably you can tell us a bit about that. Well, there's some, I, there's some really good book that I would recommend to anyone interested in this, um, which is by Katie Siegel. It's called The Heroine Paint, which is in its, and the subtitle is After Frankenthaler. And in that book, she's collected um, essays and artist statements um, about the kind of legacy of Frankenthaler. So how her authority has been projected forward into the future. And um, she has sort of sections devoted to uh, feminist interpretations of her art to her influence on male artists uh, like Andy Warhol. Um, and it's it's not, um, her, her influence is kind of various, right? Which mm-hmm. is also interesting. It's not this um, hallmark effect. Um, uh, she, she makes her way into strange places um, in terms of artists who looked at her work and then took something from it. 
Um, and I like the way Katie charts this almost sort of alluvial influence that spreads out across the landscape of art, which is exactly the way any, you know, great painter has some kind of an effect and it's less paternal or maternal. It's less of a handing down of, of one inheritance to another and more of a way, the ways in which various artists have picked up her work at times and used it in small ways potentially and also large ways. Wow. You know, that sounds like the book I want to read, actually, Katie Siegel. <laughs> <laughs> a slightly decentered take, which seems somehow to kind of echo her own approach. I'm just thinking of, of, of the way you described her working with loose colours uh, in her early work, just waiting and w- watching them behave however they wanted to behave and just observing and waiting to see what the effect is. Yes, I'm always worried when I describe it that way that I'm setting up some kind of very clear binary between a masculine way and a feminine way of thinking about things. Mm. And I think there's a danger in sort of in emphasizing the contrast that we end up falling back on this idea that because she was a woman, her influence operates in slightly different ways. Mm. Um, I suppose it's so, the difference between having a conversation and, and didactic top-down teaching. Yeah, uh, one other thing we should say, actually, you were talking about the the wood blocks earlier, and they are in fact on show in in London at the moment, which obviously is must be torture to you because you 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 can't go to see them. But Michael, you have been. I did go. I did go. I went this weekend. It's at Dulwich Picture Gallery and in South South London. So for anyone who can make it, I think it's on until April next year. And uh, I mean, I felt, Jenny, I don't know if, if this chimes for you. You've helped me make sense of what I saw because it's obviously um, a kind of grand experiment in a way and a collaboration that runs from the 70s into the noughties in a way. Um, and what was I thought special and interesting about it was you saw lots of works in their kind of um, prospective state. There were sort of models and early attempts at things like um, Essence Mulberry, you know, in the t- Tales of Genji. And of course, the thing ended um, with just Madame Butterfly in a room on its own, which wow. just looked magnificent, but it had, you know, the earlier versions next to it. And on at least one of those, you could see her notes where she's saying, like, this is definitely the bottom, or I don't care about this. So it was amazing to see those things at close, but also to see how they emerged. And, and when I say you've helped me make sense of it, I think you could see that she's following a through line that has something in common with that that early work that early kind of color field work in a different medium does that sort of ring true yes I admire her confidence in her own instincts she discovered what she liked and she she kept with it it's mm-hmm. not to say that she doubled back on herself or became repetitive um, mm-hmm. because you can see I, I presume from those notes how relentless she was and kind of pushing for the effects that she she wanted um, and that she wanted to go into a new medium like that and and spend that much time, right, exploring that shows mm. you how tenacious those questions of that were, um, that she didn't feel like they'd been answered and that she needed to go there in order to, to develop her answers to them more. And Madam Butterfly, that uh, that work you just mentioned there, Michael, from mm. 2000, that Jenny, that that is that's recognized now as one of her late masterpieces isn't it I mean can you give us a sense of what what it is because it's it's very large for one thing (laughs) so it's three panels of paper measuring over six feet in length right so it's a woodcut but it's six feet (laughs) and it uses 102 colors printed from 46 wood blocks so 46 applications of wood blocks 102 colors I mean it's just it's astounding it's so ambitious isn't it yeah that's absolutely amazing imagine the time it would have taken and imagine the registration issues right so (laughs) and the 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 piece itself you look at it and you sort of apprehend it as if it were a painting it's not that you see the 102 colors necessarily but you see you immediately recognize the kind of complexity of it and, and that also seems a, a, a piece of technical virtuosity that you, you don't necessarily see the layers. You don't necessarily have to know that it was 102 colors, but you have no idea how it was made as a woodblock as a result, because it just seems so outside the realm of what you would expect. And the idea that it's, it's, it's working with a, a narrative at Madame Butterfly and then uh, Michael, you also mentioned the Tales of Genji. Is, is this something that she 
that she did a lot. She kind of worked with uh, with existing narratives. She was inspired by literature. Uh, I don't know specifically about these two titles. Um, she definitely was interested in history, right? And so she and in art history. And so some of her earlier pieces are also responding to very particular artists and titles of, of, of works. Um, uh, though I don't know if there's a particular backstory to, um, to Madame Butterfly beyond just that maybe she was thinking about it at the time. At the gallery, there's definitely various notes about these titles and how maybe they might, they might almost like their associations. They're not obviously yeah. representative mm-hmm. in any straightforward way, but in another room across from the woodcuts there's this fantastic kind of I mean bonus feature in that they have a room with Monet's um, water lilies and agapanthus right next to feather which is also later is it the late 70s the point is is you see that also it's obviously not figurative but it's almost the, the feeling you you get from it the feeling she's got from it transferred in this amazing complex sort of shimmering way on this grand scale I I thought it had it showed again the continuity with the with the woodcut work well I suppose then on that parting note Jenny we've tried to cover a a six decade long career here in a very in a very brief episode Um, but when you when you think across those those you know 60 years of work what what kind of stands out for you most when you think of Helen Frankenthaler Oh, that's a hard question. I know it is. I'm yeah. so sorry. No, no, it's a great question. It's the biggest challenge to last. Um, hmm. Well, this is not maybe the answer you were looking for, but for me, there's a great uh, film of artists working in their studios. Um, I'm going to have to look up the title, but there's a section in it which has um, Helen working in her studio. And you can watch her um, apply the paint to the canvas. And she's wearing (laughs) clothes that get very dirty. And you sort of start to fixate on how whether all her clothes got very dirty the way she does this. But she's, she's kneeling and she's pushing the paint around. And you realize that she has a completely different relationship to the canvas than you do looking at it. You're standing at a distance, three or four feet away. You're looking at, you're apprehending this image as a whole. And she's sort of moving around the canvas. So the orientation is very different from how we perceive it. And she's leaning over and pushing into it. And she's waiting and standing back then pushing in. And I think that was incredibly helpful for me in understanding that the process that she's going, she's sort of putting herself through and painting these canvases is so profoundly different from the effect that I have in in looking at it. And the risk that it takes, that she's taking in thinking about it that way, really impressed me when I first saw that film. I tend to have a kind of knee-jerk assumption that the canvas is hung, that the person is painting and standing back, then going forward and painting again. Mm -hmm. And the way she was approaching it really changed my understanding of the all-overness of what she was doing. I think that's what stands out to me when I think about her is, is... how willing she was to experiment, even with that question of basic approach to the canvas um, that maybe I didn't really see before when I was just looking at them as paintings on a wall. Well, Jenny Quilter, that sounds like exactly what we need to hear for us to all go back and, well, if not make it down to the uh, exhibition in South London, which is harder for some than for others, than to at least search for images online (laughs) 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 and stare at them. Uh, at our kitchen tables. Um, Jenny Quilter, (laughs) thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Emma Smith and Jenny Quilter. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Sophia Franklin. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Michael Keynes and from me, goodbye.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 